Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Welcome to Purpose Driven Sobriety. I'm Christine and I'm an alcoholic. Welcome to the Purpose Driven Sobriety Podcast, um, where you can find us anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And um, please find us on Facebook and give us a follow. We are here today with a gentleman that that I met um, through the internet um, on one of the recovery pages. I just um, enjoyed some of his shares and we got to chitty chatting through messaging and um, I invited him to to be on the show today. Um, today's uh, episode is sponsored by Miss Andrea Swanson. She is a dear friend of mine and a friend to all of us in recovery. And so Andrea, God bless you and thank you so much for sponsoring this episode. So Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you, Christine. I thought maybe you wanted to invite me because of my Midwestern accent, but I wasn't quite <laughs> There you sure. go, because you're in Michigan, right? <laughs> I am in Michigan, yeah. so yes, and awesome. uh, and you're in Texas, so yeah. we're we're coming together. We're let's coming co- together. Let's compare the let's compare the weather. How's the weather there? Actually, it's going to be beautiful today. It's going to be like in the mid 60s, so okay. uh, we're we're very happy here okay. in Michigan. So West Michigan, actually, I'm on the West Coast, so we call this the California Michigan because we're right by Lake Michigan, nice sandy beaches. Oh, so, beautiful, uh, beautiful, beautiful here, just like in Texas. I'm oh, sure. Oh, I bet. Yeah, it's in. Well, just as I came into the studio, yeah, it was mid 60s. So we're we're pulling out the shorts and getting ready for. Getting ready for the winter, <laughs> the weather to change. So, on this show, we um, we just we just share our stories, experience, strength, and hope. And um, you know, I I, I started this um, after I've just dealt with so many people that are still living in shame, you know, through alcoholism and addiction. And um, um, no shame, no shame here. Um, you know, I, I try to live my recovery out loud and I just love other people that do that. And so I, I like I said, I think that's what drew me to you. So. The floor is yours, sir. sir. Tell me all about what happened, what it was like, and what you're like now. Sure, Christine. So thanks. My name is Ron, recovering alcoholic addict. Um, So, yeah, so I always like to kind of tell my story, and I appreciate that. I mean, I I love to tell my story because, one, every time I tell my story, uh, you know, one, it defeats the shame and guilt part of it because what kept me sick for the longest time was I kept it all to myself. Mm. And um, I probably knew I had a problem for at least a couple of years before uh, the uh, before I hit my bottom and before I got into this program, 12-step recovery program. And um, so every time I tell my story, one, it helps, I think, uh, get rid of that shame and guilt. And, and it's pretty much gone today but also to help others. And that's how God speaks for me. So, Amen. so I like to usually start to tell you a little bit about, and feel free to interrupt me because uh, I get my, I usually take about three breaths per hour. <laughs> and, uh, and I got that from my mother, but, um, 
And so hopefully I don't do that too much. But uh, so I, so I'm one of seven, uh, three brothers and three sisters. I uh, grew up on the east side of Michigan and, um, and, you know, my dad was a bricklayer contractor. My mom stayed at home. My dad uh, worked very hard. I'm from Polish. Uh, my both my parents are Polish. And uh, my dad worked hard and he drank hard. And um, um, and so he was, he had this disease of alcoholism. Um, but as a kid growing up, so I was the second youngest. I do have a baby sister. But so growing up in the 70s, so... Um, uh, you know, I didn't really realize too much about, you know, it was a really nice, you know, growing up. We grew up on 20 acres and down there. So we had a lot of fun growing up in the seventies, a lot different than today. We didn't mm. have smartphones and we had three channels, you know, um, TV channels. So you're outside just having a lot of fun. And, and I just remember just having a lot of fun outside and I don't remember drinking a whole lot with my, my dad drinking much, but there was one of those time frames that as many of us have that, uh, changed for me. And it was, I was 11 years old and we used to go on the job site every so often, uh, to help my dad out. And I remember he tried to stop drinking mm. one of these times and he had a seizure. Uh, uh, he had a seizure on the job site. I did a DT seizure. And I just mm. remember as a kid, just in a, in a hot, and the ambulance came and, um, and that time it just, my whole life changed as a kid. And I just remember being just really scared. <clears throat> and, you know, and I, you know, I just started to worry as a kid. I just remember just like, wow, you know, just, you know, the whole mortality chance of, of a parent dying was just, it struck me as a kid. Mm. And I remember like a couple of days after that, you know, he was getting hallucinations. I remember him coming down from the bathroom. And he was like circling somebody. I think he was seeing something. <clears throat> and, I just remember just being so shocked as a kid. I was like, wow, you know, this is just the craziest thing. And ever since then, I just remember being afraid. You know, just being afraid as, as a, as a young, as a young person. So, um, that was a time from just two time frames of just a happy kid to just being worried. Now, did you know at so the time that it was alcohol related or did you just think he was sick? Um, that's a good question. So I think, um, I think I knew it was deep down, but so this was 1977. Um, you know, so I am being 11. Uh, I don't, you know what, that's a good question. I, I don't really know, but I think he, I knew he was going to try to stop. He was trying to stop drinking. Um, so I just remember being, being a really afraid right. of it. And, um, so, so moving on from there, you know, uh, 1978, uh, if, if many of your people who are listening in are a little bit older, you know, economically, you know, times are really tough, mm-hmm. you know, as a, as a contractor, builder, bricklayer, you know, double digit inflation, double digit, um, uh, you know, interest rates, you know, people weren't building back then. So. Um, my dad got out of the contracting business and, and decided to build uh, to buy a trailer park gas station liquor store. Oh wow! On that west side, and that makes a lot of sense for an alcoholic, Jeez. you know. So, so um, you know, we we you know, four of us kids, you know, three of the older kids stayed back in the Detroit area, and we we moved up to um, 
we moved up to Whitehall area, Whitehall, Michigan is where I live, which is on the West coast. And, and, and being going to the seventh grade, it was just really tough as it is moving, you know, leaving all my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, if you guys remember with being 12, 13 years old, how tough it was. And, you know, I remember many a times, um, my dad trying to stop drinking, you know, on his own, he had met, went in a couple of times to dry out, um, same ordeal, you know, of, you know, DTs, my brother drive, you know, driving him to, you know, treatment and uh, having DTs and off and on. And, and if any of you listening in, you've been part of an alcoholic family, just a constant yelling. Yeah, he was never physically abusive to my mother, but just a constant, you know, yelling and the broken record mm-hmm. uh, of just saying stuff over and over. And whatever his hangups were growing up as a, as a young Polish immigrant, uh, you know, my dad didn't immigrate here, but his, his mother did. His, he never met his dad. His dad, when he was six weeks old, he was one of 11. His, his dad went back to Poland uh, when he was six weeks old. He was the youngest. He never met his dad. Wow. And, his, and his mom actually died in his arms when falling down the steps when he was 27. Mm-hmm. So he had his own issues growing up. Um, and uh, and he had some other issues that he would bring up every time he was drinking uh his own hangups and you hear that all the time every time he drank and um so you just heard that over and over and my mom had left a couple of times and came back and and uh and my other older siblings that were you know with us you know had to deal with all that too and and then having a liquor store and having to kind of do the gas station and and i just remember as a teenager just being so ashamed of all that. Cause I figured everyone knew my dad drank and I'm sure people knew it was. I remember thinking being 13, 14, um, having to say the store, being at the store, just feeling, starting to feel less, mm-hmm. you know, than everyone else just being ashamed of the whole family situation. Um, and it was just very difficult. I mean, anyone listens, just being part of that, um, dysfunctional family. And then my mom having to go through all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was just, just very difficult. And then again, moving in a new place, you know, just trying to fit in, um, um, at that time. So I think it was a little bit harder on my brother who was two years older than me. Yeah. He, he, he rebelled more, you know, he was more the rebellious one. I was just trying to kind of, I must say, I wasn't necessarily the lost child. And many of you know what that, the whole dynamics of all that was, but, um, so anyway, so back and forth going through that, um, we were lucky. So a couple of years in 1980, uh, we were lucky is that a small convenience store chain decided to buy us out by, by the liquor store portion out. Um, cause we just, we couldn't handle it. So two years in, you know, even with the high interest rates, they decided to buy us out and we kept the trailer park. So thank God that that happened, you know, not that, not that my dad stopped drinking because of, but it was just too difficult having the store. Sure. Um, so I was 14, 15 at the time, 14 at the time, um, you know, trying to fit in. And then at 15, um, I got exposed to my first mood altering chemical. Mm. Um, so interesting enough, uh, you know, many of us, many of you know, sometimes, you know, you know, I was brought up and still a practicing Catholic, uh, which is an important part of my spirituality. But, but as, as many of you know, growing, growing up as a kid, my mom, you know, 
but never forget us to be able to go to mass in the morning. You know, sometimes, you know, you always wonder, you'd be sleeping and you're thinking, oh, it's 1020 or, or 1030. Mass is always 11. You know, she's going to forget this time, but she always nope. came in and took the <laughs> covers off. You know, you always got it, you know, and, and you know, church as a young person is, can be very boring, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and it's no fault. I mean, it's just, I mean, we have it, but I've got three children myself and sometimes, you know, it's, it can be very, I totally get it, you know, and I had this really bad cough and cold and um, I, I got, I got prescribed a, a medicine with codeine and a cold active fed C and I took it as prescribed. And, uh, and you know what? Church was never so interesting and exciting <laughs> than I ever had before. You know, I was following <laughs> along, I was singing and uh, the priest was saying it was so interesting, you know, and, um, and in my mind, I thought, you know, whatever was in that syrup, you know, uh, was a cure to whatever problems I had, whatever emotional pain I had going on at, at home, whatever feelings of insufficiency or whatever feelings of low self-esteem, if I can just get a hold of that, what's in that syrup, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a cure-all for right. me. That anything with a little sleepy eye on, you know, because they used to give it and be like a little sleepy yep, eye. I remember that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, later that year, I was also exposed to alcohol at a party, you know, or at a friend's house, uh, some slow gin, and I think it was seven up. And, and I got the same feeling also with that. Um, the only thing I didn't like about alcohol so much was it made me, made me uncoordinated. And I figured people knew, you know, so I didn't like alcohol as much. But also at 15, you know, um, 15 is that magic thing. So I just, but I, I just remember the feeling. I think people like us who have this disease, that is what is different. You know, people who don't have this genetic makeup, uh, my take on it is they don't get that same feeling. That's where it's the biochemical piece. You know, if you talk to anyone else who gets exposed to alcohol or this disease or get exposed to any type of, mood altering chemical whether it be um you know uh, uh, any opiate or anything like that they don't remember their first exposure like that um where it's like a, a life-changing event um where it's almost romance it is people right. can remember i mean that, yeah. that is that is thing because some people will take it and they'll get sick you know they'll get sick you know or they'll get you know they'll get a bad adverse event you know we call them or they'll get, you know, the alcohol be like, ah, you know, it was, it was okay. I, I I liked it, but you know, but it was okay. And instead of remembering if it's if it's a substance like you're speaking of, like like something with codeine or something like that, instead of remembering it made my cough go away or it made me, um, th- we remember how it made us feel. That's I right. think yeah, where that's part the the part of the of the disease. It's like instead of remembering if it, if it did its job, the drug it did its job. We remember how, oh how it made us feel. Yep. Right. Right. I mean, I I talked to. I mean, I have quite a few friends in recovery, and we, you know, I don't say we talk about that a lot, but you know, any any person I talk to is in, in a twelve step program. Or any person you know I work with, you know, people always remember that. And I talk to normies, mm-hmm. which, as you know, we, we call they have no I no concept of that. They have no concept of that about you know being exposed, or they 
you know, they'll take a medicine for pain or they'll take a uh, benzodiazepine for anxiety. Mm-hmm. And they t- yeah, as yeah, yeah, pres- they take as, as prescribed. prescribed. How weird yeah, is that? Yeah, right. <laughs> weird. <laughs> so, so at 15, I found myself, you know, starting to look in people's medicine cabinets, mm-hmm. you know, looking for something that had a sleepy eye, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, you know, I had a girlfriend at the time whose dad uh, had a bad back pain, you know, and I found myself taking some of his stuff, um, other people's things and, and people's cough medicines, um, uh, taking them, you know, and, and, and diverting or taking people's stuff, you know, and and um, and it helped me deal with stuff that was going on at home because my dad was still drinking. Mm. Um, I had some, my older brothers uh, that were with us, you know, one of them, the guy was two years older, was a very good athlete. Uh, he was uh, being looked at by Division One, like University of Michigan, Michigan State, a uh, very good football player, you know, University of Pittsburgh, you know, Indiana, uh, was just a, an awesome athlete and got a ton of accolades, you know. Um, then the brother that was older than him was going to pharmacy school uh, and uh, was a pharmacist and uh, was a very good-looking fella, you know, um, almost model-like, you know, with his looks and his smarts. And as a as a 15-year-old, as much as, like, I learned from my own kids now, as I make sure to uh, – and my parents never, like uh, – my parents never, my dad or my mom never, like, gave any more accolades to any one of us other than the other one. They never did. But as a teenager, it's natural, though, sure. to say, wow, look at – you know, my other brothers and sisters, look how good they are, look mm-hmm. how crappy I am, you know. And I just found myself comparing. And I did that to other people. I mean, we, we grew up lower middle class. And I would see, you know, other kids in high, you know, other kids in high school on spring break were going out to Vail skiing. And then, you know, what I got for Christmas was some corduroys, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I mean, we didn't have a whole lot, a lot of hand-me-downs. You know, as you can tell, money mismanagement was an issue when you're growing up in an alcoholic home. Um, and that all fed into the feelings of being less. So, so you know, getting, you know, some uh, any type of opiates, you know, or even some, you know, that made it all go away for whatever, two hours or three hours um, or even drinking. So that made it all okay, you know. And then I found myself trying to do well in school. You know, I, I was a pretty pretty good athlete, not like my brother, um, but I was always a little brother, you know. Um, and so as time went on, you know, uh, I did better. And I did, and I and I joined a band, so I was a musician. Um, so that was kind of fun too. So I was in a hard rock band or rock band in high school, you know. And I found that being a human doing did kind of help from that, you know, instead of being a human being, I became a human doing, mm. you know, I did a lot of sports, you know, I was in a hard rock band, um, or, or rock band, I guess a hard rock band, but I guess they call it hard rock back then. Did a lot of, you know, Judas Priest and, mm-hmm. and, and Van Halen and Def Leppard and stuff like that. There's actually some YouTube videos of it, but we Love can link it. those later. Love it. Absolutely. But anyway. <laughs> so, so anyways, um, so going through high school, you know, uh, I did all that kind of stuff and using on the side, you know, no one ever knew, you know, just some diverting. And um, so as I start to, you know, I thought maybe my dad, my dad was, you know, pretty cool. My dad was, you know, I mean, he was drinking, but, you know, as a, as a parent, you know, my dad didn't want me to, you know, he only had a 10th grade education. 
Um, and what happened was is he had to drop out to work on the farm. So he had, he grew up on a farm again, as an immigrant, you know, or his parents are immigrants and he had to drop out and just to work on the farm. Mm. So all of his kids, he wanted us to, you know, have an education. So he was like, Hey, you know, what do you want to do when you, when you grow up? And I'm like, well, I think I want to be an accountant because you know, I was good with numbers. So then I take an accountant class and man, that was boring. So, um, he then's like, well, why don't you be like your brother, Dan, you know, he's a pharmacist. And I'm like, well, I don't know, you know, cause he brought home books like this. Oh, wow. You probably can't see it. So that's a door. That's a doorstop. Right <laughs> door <laughs> yeah. So this book is about three or four pounds. And I'm like, wow, I don't know. This is, this looks like a lot of, a lot of work, you know, right. and uh, it looks like it is. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't think I want to do that, you know? And, um, but he's like, I'm not sure you can't, you know? So, so I took a chemistry and biology class in uh, high school and, uh, and I really liked it. I really liked biology, really liked chemistry. It was pretty natural at that. So, and then one of my good, my, my, one of my best friends in high school was going into pharmacy. And I was like, well, if he's going to do it, then I probably can do it. And so I don't know if it was a subconscious thing to go into pharmacy because I liked opiates or I like mood altering chemicals, but so, or it was a bio, or it was because I like biology or chemistry, but I decided I was going to go into pharmacy school. Um, as you know, when I got out and, and from, from what my dad did and then seeing what my brother did. Um, so that's what I did. So I'm about 18 at this time. Um, so, you know, I went to community college. I was, uh, you know, to start out, um, I was kind of lucky. I, I, I had fun um, there. I was able to play baseball there, you know, because I, I did pretty well in baseball. So I got to play Juco or junior college baseball. And that helped a lot with kind of a low self-esteem, you know, being able to play baseball. Um, and I, and I did relatively well in school. I did have my first girlfriend break up with me. Uh, who she was a freshman, Nate, another, like a guy young, like four years younger. And that really, threw me for a loop, you know, with, with using and stuff and trying to use and did a little bit of drinking, but it was hard to get, you know, you can only, you know, take people's stuff so much. There's right. only so many, you know, filing cabinets, you know, um, didn't really like marijuana that much just because it, you know, made me paranoid, um, uh, drink a little bit, but again, I didn't, it did make me do some things that didn't, uh, I wouldn't normally do but I didn't really like it as much, but I still partied some through a lot of big parties. I did, I did quit the band, um, uh, primarily because, you know, we did like do some Northern Michigan stuff, you know, with this band that I was in and, uh, and realized music, music full-time wasn't going to be my deal because the people that were doing it were like really skinny and they smoked cigarettes and they didn't have a lot of money. And I thought, and you wanted to be the opposite of that. And I'm like, I don't think that's going to be what I want to do. You know, it's just, it, 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 you know, it was a lot of fun playing music, and, but it was like, I don't think that's going to be my, my, my lifelong thing. Um, so anyways, I went to community college. I, I got a different girlfriend um, and, uh, and, you know, I did okay. And, and then I, you know, I got into pharmacy school um, and it was interesting with pharmacy school, you know, you get an internship Um you know, you work at the hospital, uh, like on weekends mm. and, um, and 
you know, it was, it took a bit to get into pharmacy school, but I, so it was interesting. So when I got into farm, you know, I worked as an intern, uh, you know, what happens is when, when you're in, when you're in pharmacy, you know, there's just different drugs that cause, you know, abuse potential. C5, we call control substance five is the least abusive. And then C2, these different C categories is that C1 is the most uh, uh, addictive and C1 means there's no no therapeutic benefit like something like crack cocaine or like mm. heroin is one c2 is like morphine um you know cocaine actually powder cocaine is c2 because we do use powder cocaine for we mix it in we use it for like eye operations and then it can cause it's an anesthetic um but what's interesting i knew that because i was in pharmacy school and then believe it or not the second day when i was working at the hospital um uh, I found myself uh, looking at, um, you know, these C, you know, um, the ones that were labeled yeah. C, yeah. you know, and, and I found myself, you know, you know, taking some of those. So you know, were, you, so you were permitted, even on, even on your second day as an intern, you were permitted to, which, you know, I, I know nothing. I'm a mortgage banker. Ask me a mortgage question. But but so even it, it being brand new, you still had access to those those medications. Oh, sure. oh wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. You work. Yeah, I mean, you work. I mean, today, nowadays, no. I mean, this is, this is back in the 80s. So um, now it's much more tightly regulated. Not regulated as a work, but it's just much more, um, you know, really, you know, tightly with regards to how the, how they're, um, you know, accounted for, right. Got you it. know, Got it. um, but it was just crazy. Just the whole compulsion and the obsession of all that, with the disease, you know, um, but you know, it was only, it was only like during the, the, the weekend, every other weekend, you know, it was only when I was, when I was there working, I actually do have an extra, like semi-vertebrae in my back, you know? And so part of the kind of the rationalization was that my back was hurting from, you know, from standing up for eight hours and made mm-hmm. the pain go away. I mean, the disease will do that oh, to sure. us. You know, the disease will say, you know what, I got a headache and I have this or I'm anxious and I'll, you know, I take this or that. And I'm not saying some of us don't have chronic pain and don't need those type of things. And we're not, we're not murderers. Yeah, but we, you know, we become, has, we become very gifted at telling ourselves rational lies. So we can rationalize and anything. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's why when we, when we need those type of things, you know, and I was always told this and we need those type of things. If we have a broken leg or if we have surgery and, you know, we have, uh, you know, stuff, stuff done that, you know, someone else is in control of that. Not you or I, or I'm not the one right. doing that. Right. You know, I, someone else is, you know, um, running that show. But anyway, so and so in pharmacy school, I did that for a while, but it was only, you know, um, it was only uh, on weekends, you know, was, I never took any of back to, back to school. Um, uh, and that's why I told myself it was only recreational, blah, blah, blah. It was only a small amount. Um, and, you know, and I did pretty well in pharmacy school. You know, um, I was up in a pharmacy fraternity and uh, uh, my brother was in the same pharmacy fraternity and... Um, and, you know, I, I had pretty good smarts and did really well. And um, uh, and things didn't progress, you know, quite yet. Uh, and then I remember this line in the sand, uh, kind of similar. You know, every person who has this disease 
I believe, remembers when you cross that line where it comes from a recreational to an everyday where you can't go back, mm-hmm. you know, or it doesn't, you know. And that was the summer of 1988. And I decided to take some summer classes because I wanted to make my last year uh, a little bit lighter, you know. So I decided to take some summer classes. And because um, where I was living was about an hour, 15 minutes from where I, where I got my BS in pharmacy. And I was, and these summer classes were like three, four hours long, you know, in the summer. Mm-hmm. And then, so they're long, you know, and I didn't want to be bored. So I just say, well, you know, how you not be bored is by, you know, you take, <laughs> that you got a little buzz on, you know. So um, I decided that, you know, take, you know, have some uh, opiates or whatever for, you know, um, so I could enjoy the class a little bit better, you know, because I don't like to be bored. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I, that's what I was doing. So a couple of days a week, I was, you know, started to take some during that time. And and then when fall came around, I tried to go back to just recreational, and I could. I got. I remember it was I got very depressed. I remember there was a little bit a little bit of withdrawal. Um, I just found myself really. Uh, really out of it. And I found myself like during the week going back to the hospital, making excuses to go back to the hospital to, to take some meds and come back, you know? Um, and, um, and how scary that was in a sense, you know, and having to come back for a day and then stealing something coming back, you know? Um, and that's where I, I found myself having to bring back stuff, you know, to get through during the week. Um, and that was that, that line I crossed. I couldn't go back to just every other weekend using some and then just, you know, trying to go. And, and then the powerlessness kicked in. I just remember the powerlessness feeling, the more feeling of shame, uh, just like thinking, wow, you know, this is uh, out of control. So at that time, I was, let's see, I was uh, 21, maybe. Let's see, 21 at the time. So... I, you know, I, I did that for a while and just going back and forth. I remember um, I was went on clinicals, Grand Rapids, and doing some of that. I did really well on clinicals. I mean, uh, even though I was using and it was kind of, I got some uh, accolades for how well I was doing. And then spring came. Spring came, and I remember telling myself, you know what, I can't see myself being 50 years old and, and working as a pharmacist and using every day. I just can't, you know, use, it just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So, so I was able to quit, like white knuckle on it. And, uh, but I started drinking more, you know, I started drinking more. I remember doing some party and you know, more drinking, drinking, they, you know, the you know, just basically using another addiction, you know, that, that happens to us. So let's, let's pause there because there, there nothing, you know, of course, you know, I'm, I'm 11 years into this gig and, and nothing, um, it took me a minute coming in here to recognize, you know, how, how, um, I don't want to use the word silly because that, that, um, is not, is not proper, but when sitting at a table in a, in a, in a recovery meeting and, and someone says, well, you know, I, you know, I quit drinking three years ago, you know, I just smoke weed now. And it's just like, okay, you know, mind altering is mind altering is mind altering is mind altering. A rose by any other name still gets you high. You know, it, it, it's it, people don't fool yourself to think that you can substitute one mind altering for the other mind altering. It don't work that way. 
It doesn't work that way. And you are fooling yourself. If you have a family member, they're just doing it. It's, it's just a matter of time until they're right back to what, what they're, what we call drug of choice is. You know, it's, it's just a matter of time. So thank I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned that. Sorry. I wanted to put that distinction out there for people that think, well, you know, I, I'm not doing this, but I'm just doing this. And it's like, okay, there's another rational lies. That's enough that you're rationalizing using a mind-altering substance. You know, yeah, anyway, I just wanted to make that point. Yeah, and I'll talk a little bit about when I get into treatment and what how the, the, how, um, how the light bulb went on in regards to that. But, but to, to, to your point is, you know, it's the part of the brain that actually causes that, causes that mood-altering. I mean, it's the same part of the brain, you know, that is the fight, flight, flirt, you know, spot. It's the four Fs. The limb, limb break. And food. Isn't that the yeah, one? you got it. Yeah, I'm, I'm smart. You, you got it. You're I on know, top right? of it. You're right? on top of yeah, it. Yeah, don't be impressed. Don't, and so don't, it, don't be impressed. You know, and then some people say, what about caffeine? You know, what about, you know, uh, you know, nicotine? Well, the thing is, though, is caffeine doesn't make me, like, like sell, sell my home or mm-hmm. whatever. It doesn't make me sell my TV or it doesn't make me rob a bank. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nicotine doesn't make me, you know. There's no data that suggests those mood-altering chemicals do that. But, you know, but people will jump in a car that are on THC or people, you know, some of those other things, you know, that kind of cause that, you know. So there's data behind that. And as you know, um, that that is highly controversial on some, you know, uh, social media sites about people who smoke weed. And Mm -hmm. uh, for for me, I'm going to tell you what, my recovery is way too precious for me to start fooling around with doing something like that because what I'll do again and I, I know my past is if I you know I've lost both parents since I've been in recovery and the only way around is through it right you know and if I smoke some weed to deal with the emotional pain of that that's just like me when I was 17 18 15 not wanting you know, to be bored and, you know, right. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't really need to do that. And, and, and I'll go toe to toe a little bit with some of the, to the marijuana maintenance program folks, you know, just for a while, just for some entertainment. And then I'll say a day at a time, this is where I'm at. And I'm just going to stick with that. I don't want to, I don't want my ego to get too big because, you know, ego will, you know, you know, the halo from here to here is only six That's inches. That's exactly right. So I don't really, <laughs> and then it's yeah, I don't really <laughs> want to, I don't really want to get there too much with, you know, look how great. I am because I was not what got me to be here. So I have to be real careful. I have to be really careful with um, the ego piece of all that. But anyway, so, so, so anyway, so back to springtime, I was able to kind of spring 1989. I was able to uh, at least get off the narcotics. uh, And I remember like leaving the hospital, not taking it and just being like so proud of myself, white knuckle. Uh, not doing it, you know, drinking a little bit more. And then uh, I think it was, I can't remember the exact day in May, but, you know, I had this, you know, I was at the fraternity. I had a little brother, you know, that was, um, we had these, you know, if anyone's been at fraternity store, you know, you have these little brothers, little sisters. And mm-hmm. this guy was, a, his, his parents uh, own multiple pharmacies uh, in Michigan. And he was in pre-pharmacy. He was going to be trying to get into pharmacy school. But he, like the guy, he, I believe he had our disease and he, he partied a lot, but he was telling everyone he was getting to pharmacy school. And I thought, well, this guy must be pretty smart, but he like partied like some of us older guys who already were in pharmacy school. And I remember I was working 
and I got a call uh, at the at the hospital that they found him in the basement. He had hung himself oh, wow. because he he was not getting in the pharmacy school, and the and the you know and the jig was up that he was bailing out and he was going to have to tell his parents mm. and the, the shame was too much and that um, he hung himself. And of course, once I got that news, you know, I just went back to using again mm. because I just couldn't deal with the I couldn't deal with the emotional pain of all of that. And um, of course, you know, I had no support, I had no program. Um, and uh, I just remember you know, and I started right back where I was, you know, at that time I was probably taking, you know, six or eight, you know, six or eight pills a day. I was eight at a time. I was probably up now like 13, 14 pills. I mean, the tolerance goes up and I just remember going back to whatever. So, um, I graduated, uh, and they did have a spot for me in the, at the hospital because, you know, the hospital is only so many spots and, um, and, uh, and so then I got a I got a job at uh, one of the retail stores, you know, uh, as a kind of a retail pharmacist, a graduate pharmacist, mm-hmm. you know. So I got lucky in a way. They never at the hospital. They never they never they never caught me. I never they never found out, even though stuff was going, you know, was missing. And I'm sure that they. I mean, I was there for a couple of years, and I'm sure, but um, just their ability, you know. Thank God. I mean, it is what it is, but. Um, and it kept me sick. And so, so as a graduate pharmacist, you know, they usually are, they'll try to find you a store, but they have you work at all these different spots. And I remember going to all these different spots and diverting from there. And, um, and at the time I started having some trouble with my girlfriend at the time. So the emotional pain made it worse. And then I found myself going from a schedule three narcotics just to more the schedule two narcotics, which gets you more and more trouble. You know, if you if you get caught, and I just mm-hmm. because the schedule threes didn't really give me how I was feeling, and at the time, you know, I only got like felt good about twenty minutes in the morning. It was called they called oh, wow. chasing the dragon. Yeah, you know, and I was almost like Elvis. I was starting to become like Elvis. You know, something get me up in the morning, and something you know, get me mm-hmm. sleeping at night, and um, and uh, and I just remember just being so much in the emotional pain with my girlfriend at the time, and uh. It was just really tough. So did anyone and, know, you know at the time, anyone in your family have any suspicion or did the girlfriend have any suspicion at that time or were you just living in it by yourself? I think, I don't think, I think maybe a few people, I, my, one of my friends said he thought, you know, he hadn't seen me in a while. He thought something was off, you know. Um, and I just remember a couple of times just almost being the point of telling my girlfriend because I was, you know, uh, feeling so much shame, but that shame kept me, uh, just so mm-hmm. here and the disease also tells you to keep it in and mm-hmm. then you know I'm going to quit tomorrow you right. know and I remember a couple times and then I finally got my own store in my hometown you know for like in November this is like November 1989 I got my own store and I remember a couple times just not going to do it you know uh, it's not going to use you know and then by one o'clock you know they're using again mm-hmm. you know and I'm going to quit I'll quit tomorrow and, um, I just remember being in so much pain, you know, and, um, and I just, at this time, so I'm up to using 30 pills a day of, of, this, of, of, you know, of Norco's and, and, and Tylox and Perkadans mm-hmm. and these are gills. You know, 
and drink at some, but not a lot, you know, um, often I like party and some of my friends, but not a lot. And then taking something to fall asleep and then maybe some, uh, better means to, you know, like this diet pills to get up. And, and I just, I just remember, uh, just feeling like crap. I'm 23 at the time. And I just feel so much like my body is, you know, I feel like I was probably 50. And I'm 56 now, so I feel pretty good. But I just feel like I was 50 like that. And just thinking maybe I should leave this job because they're going to find out and try another job, try to find and try to start new again. And I remember like right around Christmas time. And I remember just crying out to God, you know, you know, please, you know, save me. It was just, horrible where were you when that happened were you at work i was like i was in i was in bed and i was in bed was like in bed and i and you know what god did you know he did he did he and uh about two weeks later he did he sent some angels but they weren't the angels in a biblical sense mm. these angels they had a little like red things on top of their cars. Oh. <laughs> and, they, and they had these little things with bracelets. Oh, beautiful silver bracelets, I'm <laughs> assuming. Yeah, oh dear. Yeah, you know. Okay. So, uh, and it wasn't the angels I was expecting, but they, they were the angels. The so, angels you needed. So, yeah, January 10th, 1990, I went into work. And, um, and, I, and I pulled in and I saw this security car um and it had this license plate from the headquarters in the pharmacy i worked and i and i knew it was over i knew it was over and i walked into work and uh and the pharmacy was already open and uh there was a guy there and he says you're in trouble and i said i know and um so how did you feel, how did I, you feel in that moment? Was there was there a relief? I mean, probably there had to be a degree of fear, you know. Of, of I would imagine, but but did you feel? How did you feel in that moment when I you said felt, you're I in felt trouble? A relief. Yeah, I well, I was a little bit nervous. I was I was scared, but then I I just remember thinking the lie is over. I felt like so so much relief, like you say. It was like oh my gosh, but. Uh, I did not realize how much trouble I really was. Uh, I, I really did not know. And the guy was like, tell us everything and, and then we'll go easy on you. So I basically told him everything, you know, I told him everything what happened and, you know, and uh, all I was diverting, you know, and uh, unfortunately I come to find out because I was, you know, working all these different stores, there was other people that were taking things and I got blamed for all these other things. Oh. So, 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 so long and short of it is, is you know, I, I, they let me go home, believe it or not. And I remember going home and I wrote this long letter to my parents and then my girlfriend about everything that was going on. This was like at about 10 o'clock in the morning and everyone else is at work and my parents were you know, gone doing stuff. And, and I still had a letter sitting over there and I read it. And it's wow. actually pretty, pretty difficult to read still even to this day. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remember, you know, telling them all that's going on. It was just a big shock, you know. And uh, and the next day, you know, 
they let me go home actually. I'm surprised. And then the next day, you know, the police came and the state police came and got me. Uh, they took me down to uh, the county jail and to arraign me. And what was interesting is that they had another person that they were arraigning like this for a crystal meth lab. So the, so the, the news was there, the local news was there to, to catch them, but they got like a bonus. Oh. <laughs> so they got the bonus and it was interesting. I didn't think that they were recording because I figured they'd have to have that red light. Wasn't it? So, you know, they arraigned me and, um, and then I got put up in the third floor of the county building. And I remember sitting up there with 11 of my closest friends uh, on the third floor. And I was on this quarter inch mattress of, um, you know, with no box spring going through certain goes to withdrawals and then seeing myself on the six o'clock news mm-hmm. on the Grand Rapids, you know, and, uh, and, talk, and that was the lowest point. That was the lowest point, just thinking, what the hell? And then all my friends thought that was the greatest. They thought, oh, my gosh, you're a star. Look at you. You're a star and all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the toilet was a stainless steel toilet. There's no barriers. You know, everyone gets to watch you go, you know. And I used the toilet without putting, you know, toilet paper on it. And they thought that was the funniest thing. Because, you know, I, I was just a guy, you know, there. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I thought, oh, my gosh, my whole life was ruined, you know. You know, um, and it was just, it was, it was like the, you know, it was just horrible. Uh, I mean, it, it, it was just, cra- it was the craziest, the most surreal. Uh, and I, I got rung up on, I thought it was six different felony counts. It was actually two counts of three different things, but, you know, um, and, and the prosecutor at the time was a guy who was on 60 Minutes because he, he prosecuted a, a attorney that was, had this disease, but she was pregnant with cocaine. So he, he loved to be on TV. So he was very excited to get a, a white collar fella. And, uh, so he, you know, was very excited to get me, you know, cause he wanted to get everybody, you know? So, um, so anyway, so it was very difficult. It took me about 25 days to actually get out of jail to go to treatment. And I, and I remember talking to this woman that, you know, saying her name was Marlene. She was from pharmacist, help and pharmacist, and she and she was great because they'd be talking. She's they got me hooked up, and she was like, um, you know, uh, because you know you'll never be able to drink again. And I'm like, and I remember thinking in my mind was like, you know, why are you telling me this? You know, alcohol didn't end me up in, in jail. You know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, when I get married, if I want to have a drink, I'm going to have to drink. You know, but I didn't tell her that. You mm-hmm. know, and. Uh, so, so I don't want this all to be a drunk log because we've got a little bit short on time. But anyways, I want to speed this up a little bit. Um, so anyway, so I was able to get out. I had to plead guilty to, you know, whatever. It seemed like six counts, but it was like two counts with three things under it. I got to go to a treatment place in Grand Rapids for healthcare professionals. It was long-term care. And, um, and I just remember thinking my whole career was done, you know, uh, and I remember the position there. Uh, and this was this was designed after a place called Chalba in Atlanta, which is for healthcare professionals. Had a ninety three percent success rate over five years if you complete the program. And he told me he's like, you know, he goes, yeah, you'll be able to go back to practice someday if you do what you do. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, because people kept telling me that you know you're asked forever. You well, know, yeah, and, you would think. No, no. 
yeah, no one wanted a junkie pharmacist to ever work for him. You know, and it was just, it was, I just felt emotionally. And one of the God things that ever happened in my life is, you know, I was taking 30 some pills a day and, you know, for multiple years. And I thought my whole labs and my liver and all these things would be messed up. And, you know, I got my labs back and everything was normal. Mm. Wow. You know, which was one of those God things. I thought, you know, God is working in my life. Mm-hmm. So, um, I was able, it was great. I was able to go to long-term treatment. Unfortunately, because I didn't say alcohol was my primary drug, none of that was covered. So it cost $20,000 back in 1990 for treatment back then. Wow. And um, my parents loaned me the money. You know, they weren't rich people, but they loaned me the money. Thank God. But I remember I was so afraid of just the cost of things, you know, um, because I had other lawyer bills and, I remember my first sponsor said to me, you know, which was awesome, because I was just so worried about the money aspect. Because, you know, growing up was not a lot of money. Money was always an issue. Sure. And he said to me, he says, you know what? Bills will get paid, you know. And I remember that just set me at ease. So that's what I, when I work with sponsors today, I tell people that. So I got out of treatment, you know, three weeks later. Uh, I, you know, I got a job, you know, at the nursery, which is about 300 yards from where I got busted, you know. So you know, were you, just, just real quick, Ron, were you offered treatment yeah. in lieu of jail time or, or was that type, was that the type of bargain or? or? No bargain. No. So we were, I was going to go to treatment no matter what. So, okay. so, so I, I ended up having to get sentenced anyways, you know, so I got to go to treatment. And then after treatment, I was going to get sentenced. So got I got sentenced to six months, uh, jail, six months, halfway house. Um, so I got out working at the nursery. Thanks for clarifying that. I don't want to. I don't want to kind of uh, skip the important parts. Uh, six months of you know jail, and then I worked at the nursery, pushing the lawnmower, digging ditches, three hundred yards from where I got busted. So I got to drive by where I got busted in my hometown. Wow. Where it was on the news and it was on the newspaper, and then people would drive by and say, "Hey, how's that education working out for you?" You know, um, mm. so I got to deal with shame right away. You know, I got to deal with that stuff. And that was not easy. It was not easy. Um, but, uh, again, the only way around is through it. And um, I remember, you know, I first got out of treatment. I did uh, a four-step right away. I did a fifth-step within right, right away, too. Um, got into the steps. That first year, you know, I lost, so I got my license, got suspended. It didn't get revoked. They wanted to revoke it because they're like, hey, this guy, we don't know if he'll ever be able to practice again. And then they said, this dude's got the best treatment available. Let's not revoke it. Because trying to get him back after getting revoked is much tougher than being suspended. And um, That's amazing. But, you know, see, by doing the, next, you know, doing the next right thing, urines, doing the next right thing, you know, back then, you know, um, tells you that good things will happen by doing the next right thing. So I was grateful that it was not the goal. So for two years, I did that. I mean, I, you know, I, I started making amends. One of the pharmacies I worked, one of the independent pharmacies I worked, and I stole from this guy, you know, uh, I started doing some ninth step stuff with him. And that was tough because, you know, I had to go in there probably 18 months sober and I went in there. This was like one of these old Miss America actually worked there in 1964, uh, Nancy Ann Fleming. If you look back, she uh, was married to the guy who did the newlywed, mm, yeah. newlywed game. Mm-hmm. Um, she worked there. So 
this is a place where you had like a diner and the old pharmacy and this, this older fellow was just so, you know, you know, in our active addiction, we do stuff to people. And this guy was just so you know, hurt that I would steal from him, you know, and it looks like, yeah, but I went in there to, to make amends, financial and personal amends. And I paid him like 20 bucks a month. Cause that's all I could make. I was making, I started out making four twenty five an hour and then six fifty Cause I got, mm-hmm. I was a supervisor at the long oh, pool, hey. you know, <laughs> I'm making $25 an hour to making six fifty an hour, you know? Um, but when I walked into this place, you could hear, a, you know, it all stopped. You know, you could hear like a pin drop. Oh, wow. Because, you know, they all kind of knew I was there. But, you know, talk about ego deflation. Yeah. You know, those eighth and ninth step, you know, is ego deflation. But, you, you know, just, I knew I had to don't do know. it. You just don't know how it's going to be received. Are they going to, you know, are they going to, um, you know, verbally whip you and, you know, and, and, or, or are they, that's, that is the scary part about doing, doing the steps and, and especially the ninth step because you just never know how that's going to be received. So yeah, that humility, I can't imagine walking through the door. And, and if it's if it's anything like it is today, the pharmacy itself is in the very back of you have to you have to like do a walk, you know, to get back there. So yeah, I can just envision that. So you know, so I did that. I mean, I did early, and I, I paid them back. I mean, it was twenty bucks a month. So every every month, I'd walk in there and pay them twenty bucks because there was no Venmo back then. Mm. You know, so I mean, <laughs> you had to deliver. So let me tell you the miracle. Let me tell you the miracle about that. So about so I, when I got my license back, and I, I don't want to fast forward too much, but I think it's an important part because I don't want this to be a drunk log or a user log. So about three years after that, he Bob developed cancer prostate cancer and my brother you know he needed someone to cover for him and my brother's like hey you know ron's back working are you okay for him to cover some of those hours and bob's like yes wow full circle right so i would never i had never thought i'd ever work in my hometown again so that is a miracle of the ninth That's step. a miracle. That's the miracle of stay of staying sober. Think if someone was on the front page of your of your local paper of a town of about you know, five to eight thousand, you know. And interesting enough, when I started working back again, of all that of working, I worked twelve years behind the bench, which means in the pharmacy and even in Muskegon, and kind of only one person ever recognized me. Mm. Of all the thousands of people I took care of, uh, and they recognized me, except that prosecutor I was telling you, mm-hmm. he actually came into one of the pharmacies where I was working and recognized me. And he, his eyes got so big, <laughs> he like transferred his prescription. It was made me laugh so so hard. But anyway, so so a couple other really good things I want to kind of share because I I don't want us to run over too long, and um, because there's so many good things. So. So um, once I got out of the halfway house, I, I, I met my I, I met my wife, um, who I had met from my other girlfriend from from church. I knew her from church, and um, uh, we started dating. And about a year later, she ended up getting into the program also. Uh, and uh, she had seen how happy I was after going to meetings, mm-hmm. and um, and. Uh, she has gotten the program and she just celebrated 31 years oh, in the wow. program, Congratulations you know, and, uh, you know, and, um, and so I got my license back. I, uh, I, I remember it was 
it was difficult. I remember telling my story to a lot of different people. You know, some of them just wanted to hear my story, and I don't think I would want to offer me a job. I just wanted to, they were just interested. I remember it got tough, you know, because it took a while. People didn't really want to, and I remember praying, praying. You know, we have some novena prayers in the Catholic religion, and I remember the ninth day, um, I got a call, you know, and, and actually a pharmacist ended up getting having an event. It was like an engine, engine event, and they needed someone to fill in. And um, so they called me. And that guy had never had an event like that ever again. Oh, wow. And talk about, yeah, it was really weird. His name was I mean, Bill R. I went on to give it. He has since passed away. And talk about, it was, I mean, a miracle of prayer. I always be, I always be careful about praying for certain things because you never know. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a little bit nervous about that. But so the long and short of it is that, you know, I, I worked 12 years behind the bench. I never had, you know, I prayed about, I never had a, an urge as of today to use when I was working behind there. Um, about 10 years after working, I decided I wanted to do more uh, than work behind the bench. So I decided to go back to school to, to, uh, to get my doctorate. And, um, and I remember getting the application to go back to graduate school and, and it said, uh, you know, I never had you ever been convicted of a felony, you know, so, so I threw it away. I threw the application away, you know, um, cause I was, I was full of shame. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I talked to some people and I said, you know what, uh, I'm going to wear this as a, as a badge of honor, you know, this recovery. So I got the application again and I, and I, and I, I get it and I filled it out and I told my story, you know, I told my story and, and, and it was through the university of Washington. And and they accepted me, and and that the whole idea of a, of a felony was more about like with people with like um, child abuse or those sure. perpetrators. Yeah. They had nothing to do with addiction, you know. So, so I got my doctorate in pharmacy, and you know, there was a lot of fear there, you know, just a fear of inadequacy. Again, those old tapes of you know, mm-hmm. can I do it? Am I smart enough? And um, so I've had to do that many a times, you know. Um, uh, and with getting this job. So I've got this job now where I work at research and development, medical affairs. Um, and these type of jobs you get here is they, you know, they, you apply for them. And then once you get the job, then they do a background check, mm-hmm. you know, and I've had this all set. They give you, they offer you the job. And then I tell them for the background check, Hey, by the way, I'm in recovery, you know? Um, and this is my story, you know, and, you know, people love brutal honesty. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They, they, mm-hmm. they love and, and but I had to wait. You know, I remember I got this first job and they're like, well, let's do the background check. Let's see how what comes out of it. And then, you know, and I had to wait like two weeks of that type of stuff. And you're and telling I talk yourself about all kinds of things during that, right? Oh, my uh. God. It was horrible. So a couple of really good things I wanted to say, and you, you've been great. And sometimes I don't like when I tell my full, full story, because it gets too much into the drunk log. But so, you know, uh, as of today, you know, so I've gotten these wonderful jobs and, you know, I, I, you know, I have a wonderful wife and three young kids, but I, I just, uh, I love, you know, I go to meetings today. I still work with others. I tell the story, you know, um, I, I work a, a, a spiritual and, and I, and my religion is an important part of my spirituality. Um, I, uh, I, I try, I work with others just to let them know the things I've gone through, you know, and that this too shall pass, you know, um, and that everything is recoverable as long as I don't take that first drink or mm-hmm. drug. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 
and like I work, I do a lot with social media, like you do, and just kind of share those things uh, with people. Um, and like I'm working with a young fella now. He's always my age, so yeah, he's a young fella. But yeah, a young fella recovery, and that the shame piece will really keep us sick, and we're always sick as our secrets, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, and that uh, you know, people love honesty, and then you know, like I told when I got my first job working in the pharmacy, is that you know. You can get a urine drop from me anytime, you know, and you'll know, you'll always know where I'm at, you know, uh, with regards to, and, and I'm so happy to be working. Not everyone is like that, right. you know, um, and, uh, and, you know, working the steps is really, really important, you know, um, uh, and I work them as willing as a dying good. And, 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 you know, and I, and I needed what I needed to get here. You know, my story is a little bit different. And I, I remember being a little bit, mad at the sense that some people didn't get the same bottom I did, but I remember my first sponsor said, you know what, it's going to help you in your long-term recovery, you know, going through what you went through. Well, even more than uh, that, even more than that, that the, the amount of people that you will never know how much your story has affected other people, whether it be telling it to someone you're sitting on a on an airplane with and just chitty chatting, or in a forum like this, that you just you will never know what. And, and again, my higher power, who I choose to call God, you'll never know what God is going to do with that. And that's that's one of the the motivations behind this this podcast. And and you know, I was talking with with uh, Rogue Media here where where I where I um, record the other day and I said, "Okay, so now you so you're supposed to have three shows out before you know your ranking and all this." And and instantly wrong, God was like, "I am responsible for the results, not you." It's not about right. you. And so that's that's been a big thing that, that you know, God's going to use this, how God's going to use this as long as I stay out of the way and I'm just willing, you know. And, and so you telling your story, we just never know how far-reaching that's going to be. So just telling the truth all the time, you know. And it's just, it's, it's just I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. Well, I, I appreciate what you're doing. I mean, like you say, it's... It, it is a selfish program in a sense when we tell our story, it helps us. So I try to tell people we work with, you know, um, and, and so I appreciate every time you do it. And, and I remember my sponsor telling me, you know, and I still, my sponsor is just like, when someone asks you to do something for someone else, just say yes first. Mm-hmm. And then if you can't somehow then try to work around it, but just do it, whether any type of self-service, that type of stuff, because mm-hmm. you never know how well it's going to help others. Because other people did that for me. Um, so I appreciate your opportunity. And like, like when you were asking for folks to do it, um, because not everyone has that, I want to say that gift is not ready yet. Right. You know, um, to do that. And the other thing I want to add before we, we cut it off to any other thoughts you have is that with my children. So, I have a son that's 20, a daughter that's 17, and then one that will be 16. And so we, we, we had told them all our stories in a more of a reader digest, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because, you know, they all have the genetic makeup uh, for it. And, um, and we talk about these things a lot, you know, they know about meetings. And my one daughter just went to, to an open meeting 
this month and got oh, to hear wow. a story. Oh, that's amazing. I, th- I, I suggest that for all family members that are willing to, to look inside of our world. Man, it's a great. My husband loves going to conferences loves going yeah. to go, going to meetings. I mean, he gets something out of it every single time. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I just, I think it's cool that my oldest son, I, you know, it's funny. You can, is you, and I'm not an addiction specialist or anything like that. I mean, I've done a fair amount of work looking into it just because, because of my scientific background and I've done a fair amount. And, and it might be something when I'm done doing this gig, I was thinking about going into, like a, some type of, uh, you know, counseling, stuff like that. Um, but, you know, you can, if you have kids, you can kind of see some similarities you don't know, you know, but um, you're the sweetest planet, you know, so you're trying to break that cycle, you know. I grew up in a dysfunctional home. My, my wife's, you know, grandparents were, have the disease and, you know, had the disease. And, and so we're just trying to, as you know, we're just trying to do the best we can. And the other great advice that I heard was early on is that, you know, my kids have their own higher power. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that I am their higher power in a way, but they have their own higher power. They do. You know? and, and they have their, and they have their own path, you know, and that's because right. we too, between Rick and I, we've got five kids and I'm the oldest is 35 and the youngest is 25. And so, so, I mean, to, to see that, to see that they they have their own path the same exact way I had mine and and had someone stood in God's way of reaching me when he did on March 14, 2012 I, that would have robbed me from you know from the experiences that I've had that have led me to where I am so we, I get it man with with those kids it's like sometimes it's got to be hands off because they've they, you know, the, the, the experiences now that some people would think were my worst experiences are my best. You know, right. there, there is a gratitude. There's a gratitude for those awful, horrible nightmare times that you just can't, you can't describe. And without them, I wouldn't be where I am. So, yeah, yeah, that's one of the things where you can only do what you can do. You can, you know, you can talk about the history. You can talk about the the physiological, you know, genetic makeup that of the three of you, one of them, one of you is in trouble statistically. That's just what, what history tells us. You know, it doesn't have to be that way. But and you can educate. But past that, dude, it's it's kind of hands off. And they're God's kids at the end of the day. You know, it's he's going to do what he's going to do with them. Well, like I tell them, I said, you know, three things have to happen for someone to become an addict alcoholic. One, you have to have the genetic makeup. Two, you have to be exposed to it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you never take a drink or a drug, you know, you won't become an addict alcoholic. And three, over time, obviously, you need to be exposed over time. You know, if one of those three is missing, you're not going to become an addict alcoholic. Now, with that said, if I would have never gotten into a 12-step program, you know, and learned all the things I've learned from you people and from the fellowships and just all the things. I mean, what wisdom, you know, I, I, I'd probably still be spinning like a Cassidy mm-hmm. devil somewhere. Or dead. And be some dry drunk or alcohol. Right. Or dead. So I, I'm grateful. And you've heard it around the table. Is this the worst thing that ever happened to me, but the best thing that ever happened to me? Right. You know? And, um, and so I'm just grateful that you offer the opportunity for me to come and tell my story. Cause again, every time I tell my story, it protects me. It's a shield from the shame and the guilt 
and it, it helps me to be a more of an ambassador that's right the 12 step recovery and uh and, and i'm grateful that god's called you to kind of help continue to share this message well and, i gotta uh, tell anyway, you I, can... I've, I found i figured out you know is early on in my sobriety i i had to be just out there just just because it was one of those things that if you know everybody kept saying your secrets make you sick and so if you were within my presence for more than five minutes at some point, not that I would intentionally, but somehow I would let you know that, that I was in recovery. And, and it just is such a beautiful thing when, when you, when you're willing to walk around with your guts hanging out, basically, you know, and, and you are one-on-one with it, uh, even a person, a normal person that's, that doesn't have the disease. It's, it's amazing the guard that is let down when they see that that you're being your authentic self, it gives them the ability to be their authentic right. self, and that right there is 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 a beautifully amazing connection between two human beings, in my opinion. Um, and and it's just yeah, I just I feed on that. I just feed on that. So I yeah, I just I appreciate your um, your candor and and your honesty, Ron. I think you're amazing, and I'm so glad that you're sober. Congratulations to your wife. Um, on her sobriety, and um, I'm just, uh, again, thank you so much for telling your story. Thank you very much, and uh, I look forward to more podcasts. I'll be listening, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and I hope for great success here as it grows and grows and grows, and, uh, and maybe I'll get a little bit of a Waco accent. Who knows? There you go. There you go. Have a very <laughs> blessed day. Thank you so much for, for being on Purpose Driven Sobriety. Sure. Thanks. Christine. All right. Take care. Huh? Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Purpose Driven Sobriety. Keep coming back.